It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, on behalf Team of Detroit, the hey, we want to present these buffs to our governor, hey. Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. Woo. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Come on. Big Gretch and this bitch playing no roles. Excuse all the cussing. That's just how I get my flow on. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Big Gretch got him shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Gretch with the bucks on on the lookout. Uh, and she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on that pair of bucks with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit Michigan. Throw the bucks on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face. Cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stress. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Big Gretch. Welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and my guest this hour knows uh, all too well um, the consequences of uh, being a casualty of war. Um, He is a severely disabled war veteran who has uh, written a book about his experiences and how to... um, and and where wars come from and and a number of other things. His name is uh, Captain... uh, or retired army captain alan b clark and the book is uh soldiers blood and bloodied money wars and the ruling elites and we're going to talk about that and a lot more with uh 
the Honorable Alan B. Clark, who joins me by phone. Alan, good morning and welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much, Tom. It's such a delight to talk to you, and thank you for your interest. Let's put this in context a little bit. I I never know how um, politically correct or how sensitive or insensitive it is to talk about uh, someone's disabilities, but can we put it in context a little bit so people understand what you went through, when were you serving, what were your injuries, etc.? Yes, I'll be glad to do that. Um, I uh, am a West Point graduate, class of 1963, and uh, since age eight, I had always uh, had a desire to attend West Point and become an officer. I'm what's called an Army brat. My dad was in the Army for 20 years, and we moved around a lot. Uh, I studied very hard. I was a very serious student. I knew that to get into West Point, there were a lot of qualifications that I would need to satisfy to be uh, accepted as a cadet at the academy. And I worked very hard. I studied very hard for eighth, uh, for ninth and tenth grade. I attended a Jesuit uh, Catholic high school in Washington D.C. Made good grades, and then my father was going overseas, and um, I, I was uh, slated to go to a prep school, so it'd be a boarding school. So I went to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire for eleventh grade, and um, I studied very hard there and continued to prepare myself uh, physically and uh, academically. And um, I was blessed to be able to uh, be accepted at West Point after 11th grade. So I am what's called a high school dropout. I, I got admitted to the academy in 1959 as the youngest member of my class of what entered as 735 or so. We graduated 504. I went into the Corps of Engineers, which is considered uh, one of the five combat arms branches in the United States Army. And uh, my first wife... Uh, after two or three years of service, decided that she really wanted to come back to to, to Dallas to live the good life as a civilian. And so I, I uh, was very um, upset about that because it, it kind of broke the dream that I had of being a professional officer, soldier. Uh, um, so I said, well, I'll do that because I want to preserve my marriage. Um, and But I said, well, maybe we can transfer to military intelligence and I can get into what's called a, a foreign area specialty program in Latin America because my mother is an Hispanic, and I can um, work in the embassy programs and advisory programs with the armies down in the south uh, of us, you know, South America. And so she had originally said, yes, let's do that, give it a try. Uh, but then when it came down to getting an assignment, uh, she said, no, I don't want you to be even in that. I would prefer that you get out of the Army totally. So I've been a general's aide for a division commander, a two-star general. A one-star general uh, asked me to go to Korea as a general's aide, which meant for my fourth year of service of a five-year requirement, I would uh, avoid Vietnam service. Uh, Tom, I knew that in my heart and soul that if I avoided Vietnam service where my classmates were already serving and several have already been killed in action, that I could never forgive myself and I could not with pride go to any future uh, reunions at West Point. So uh, I secretly volunteered, secretly as defined by not telling her, volunteered for Vietnam. Obviously I was accepted, trained as a prisoner of war interrogator, got there in country. There were no prisoners to interrogate in my area. Met a special forces officer commanding a certain geographic area in Vietnam. And uh, he said, when I told him I was bored, big mistake on my part, uh, he said, well, listen, when you transfer to Special Forces, the Green Berets, and I'll give you a very 
challenging and uh, interesting assignment. I said, that sounds great. So I got transferred and uh, went into the Special Forces. I was airborne qualified. Hadn't gone to the schools in um, at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where they typically go to school before assignment, um, and had a, a wonderful assignment, debriefing a double agent uh, one, for one uh, part of my tour, and then living for three months in safe houses to train Cambodian anti-communists uh, to go into Vietnam uh, through the jungle, and I dropped, dropped them off two missions that were unsuccessful because they couldn't get through the jungle to Cambodia to, to spy on the um, North Vietnamese Army, eventually got assigned to an, a post uh, out in an isolated area, which, were, which was all the posts for the Green Berets, and uh, was on duty on June 17, 1967, when an intense mortar barrage happened on, to hit my camp. Uh, the enemy had come up uh, the, the day before, and it surreptitiously set up firing positions across a river near our camp, started firing in. I was the American on duty. I began doing the things that you do when you come under attack, which means your mortar pits get manned uh, for counter-battery fire and get flares up into the air for a potential enemy ground attack, which didn't come. In the course of that, I got uh, hit by a mortar round that hit uh, behind me and took one leg off, left leg off below the knee immediately. The other leg was broken in five places. So uh, um, 10 days later, back in the States, my second, my right leg was amputated also. So um, here, about a week after my 25th birthday, I am a double leg amputee and not knowing what I'm going to do with my life and how I'm going to support my wife getting out of the army, obviously. So it started a brand new world for me. So that's kind of a, a, a long summary of how I got to being a double leg amputee. But I've done well. Uh, Tom, I consider... Uh, Alan, and- Alan, let me, let me just insert um, that you spent some time in, in a psychiatric ward. Correct. Um, in, in the wake of this, as yeah. any of us might, Alan. And during that time, you became curious about how wars get started, and you started researching that, or, or am I jumping over too much? Actually, uh, while I was in the closed psychiatric ward, which was a horrendous time for 14 weeks, right, to see a psychiatrist three times a week and go to uh, group therapy and so forth, uh, I really was just focusing and concentrating on, on getting my um, uh, emotional strength back. And, uh, you know, sure. obviously I had an extraordinary case of post-traumatic stress that became a D, a disorder, because I couldn't function, because I, you know, I, I, I was nervous and I was depressed and I had to take antidepressants. So it, when I got out of the hospital after 15 months and 12 surgeries there and eight more since then, uh, I, I really felt a need to become involved in continuing to serve my country. So I became very involved politically um, uh, and, and went on the governor's staff and served at the national level of the VA. And uh, during the course of all that, I met an extraordinary number of combat veterans who had had different experiences in different wars all the way back to World War II. And I began to kind of sort out as a uh, in my 30s the aspect of, well, well we're all hurt and we're, we're suffering and we have suffered. And what are the politics of this? What has started all this? So uh, my continued verve to serve my country outside the Army, which I couldn't do anymore, led me to uh, study and, and, uh, and um, research on wars and how they get started. And uh, it kind of 
it led to eventually writing a book on it and doing extensive research on the reasons and the political, the financial, and economic uh, and psychological reasons behind wars. So that, that became the product of my book, Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money. When you were doing that, that research, in fact, uh, the extended uh, title um, in, includes uh, Wars and the Ruling Elites. Um, what did you find out about where wars come from? Is there, is there always a, a linchpin of sorts, a um, causary uh, event that starts a chain of dominoes that, that leads to war? It's not necessarily one single event, but the elites, that has to be, the ruling elites needs to be defined. Yeah, please. And, and that relates to what I've discovered relative to bankers, international bankers, who have uh, not been um, hesitant about and sometimes lending to both sides, uh, arms merchants who have not been hesitant to sell weapons to both sides, uh, and the historical uh, and the history that I've learned um, ruling elites who uh, who profit from war industrialists who profit from um, uh, supplies and contracts being given to the military uh, newspaper people uh, who sell a lot of newspapers which is especially prevalent in the Spanish American War when you had two large competing um, newspapers in New York City that really kind of fired up the populace relative to what's happening down in uh, in Cuba and so forth for the Spanish-American War. So you've got your bankers, you've got your arms merchants. Uh, and I go back through history with a chapter about uh, what started the religious wars back in the 1600s. You know, there was the Thirty Years' War between the Protestants yeah. Catholics in Europe. So I go through the re religious wars, and I also go through uh, the industrialists that profited from wars, um, and the the bankers and and lawyers. Uh, I really focus in on the uh, um, Cromwell and Sullivan big law firm in New York City that um, ha whose uh, lawyers included John Foster Dulles, who was Secretary of State during the uh, Eisenhower years, and Alan Dulles, who led the CIA for several years. They were brothers. They had both been lawyers in that law firm. So the combination, see, these are the elites. And, and uh, it, it is reminded of me that while these people sit in their carpeted suites uh, in uh, places of power, Washington, D.C., foreign capitals, uh, New York City, and so forth, uh, they sit there and uh, they wheel and deal in a way and... Uh, you know, do not necessarily do anything to stop the wars, but yet we young patriots, when 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 the drums begin to beat, and as I call it, the toxin toil, um, the the the, the um, desire, the, the the need to finally go to war for whatever purposes, sometimes propagandized to us. Um, we're the ones that go out in the field. We're the young people of the country that that. that um, that have gone out and, and been in the trenches and been in the bayonet battles and have been under fire uh, through the centuries. And uh, that began to really impress me and uh, bother me because I'm one of those that was in that category. More with disabled vet and author, retired Army Captain Alan B. Clark. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, Visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. 
Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with disabled vet and author, retired Army Captain Alan B. Clark. Straight ahead. What's interesting about your book, Alan, is and and your research is that you went back. I mean, even to the religious wars of the 1600s to look and see if these same if this same kind of phenomena was uh, present in those conflicts, because most of us, when you talk about ruling elites and their impact on war and wars being about very often. Uh, money, land, or oil resources, um, we tend to think of ruling elites being involved in warfare primarily in the 20th century. Yes, correct. They've always been, they've always uh, had impact and involvement uh, in our wars. You know, the Rothschilds especially, uh, you know, had major involvement in the, in the Napoleonic Wars and so forth. So what does... Um what what can be done, or is there something to be done aside from just understanding that that's how it works? Well, I, I, what I what I um, cover in the back of my book, in kind of a conclusion uh, about uh, what can be done about all of this, is that um, we as citizens, um, you know, we have our own lives to live every day. We have our kids to raise. We have our our jobs to take care of. We have you know, the, the things that we want to spend our time on for personal um, personal improvement or working in the community or doing this or that and so forth. We, we pretty well stay uh, busy with what we're doing. And, uh, you know, things happen in the, in the larger and broader political and economic and financial worlds that we don't understand necessarily, especially the banking world uh, and all the intricacies of that. And we, and we just tend not to get involved. You know, we don't, we let, oh, the school board will be okay. Well, they can teach stuff, you know, that, that we might, if we found out about it, we would disagree that they're going to be doing it and so forth. So we kind of let things happen. But but I, I have um, got a section toward the end of my book indicated, look, we citizens have got to be involved. Yeah, Alan, um, a lot of people have been talking about since uh, troops were brought back from Afghanistan that we have been in America's longest war. Has there ever been a time when we weren't at war? Well, there was actually a period between the Civil War and the Spanish-American War where the, uh, the quote, war, war we were in was the internal war um, in uh, overcoming the native lands and taking control of the Native Americans, which was warfare. I mean, you know, if you come under fire or under arrows, you are in war. So we had internal wars at that time, but there was no external war that we uh, went to during that time frame. You know, we've, uh, from the very beginning of our uh, colonization, you know, we had to uh, uh, tame the territory and the frontiers in the United States. So there's been a constant uh, conflict pushing west uh, into the Native American lands um, to take take them over and so forth but our wars have been confined uh, specifically to uh, american revolution which i have an entire chapter on uh, and of course the war of 1812 and then an entire chapter on on um, 
Civil War, an entire chapter on Spanish-American War, and then an entire chapter on what I call the Banana Wars, uh, our involvement in Mexico and Haiti, Dominican Republic, and uh, in, in Central America and so forth. So uh, there have been periods where we have had troops overseas uh, since probably since the Spanish-American War, because that was a broadening out of our outlook and our commercialization of the United States to get overseas <clears throat> and open new markets up. So, you know, we were involved uh, down in Central America over pretty the next 40 or 50 years, you know, and, and in China also. <clears throat> um, Alan, when you were looking at the, at the Revolutionary War, as we look back as Americans at the Revolutionary War, we think of that as, as being a, a struggle to um, earn our freedom, to, you know, push uh, the uh, colonial rule of the British out. And, and there are a lot of lofty goals and things that we think about as being associated with the Revolutionary War. But as you explored it, and given the kind of research were you doing that you were doing, how much of that was economic? Well, uh, an awful lot of it was economic, because what I found out was <clears throat> for about nine years prior to our declaring our independence, uh, like 17, 17, um, maybe for about nine years in the, in the 1760s, uh, the Brits, the, the British, the, you know, um, <clears throat> the crown was uh, very upset uh, that the United States was starting to do well, number one. Number two, they had to pay off their debts from the French and Indian War, which uh, obviously a lot of us were very much involved in when we uh, when the Brits decided to uh, to fight uh, the French for control uh, of our continent, you know, our Northern America, our Western frontier, and so forth. And um, they imposed something called the Currency Act, which very people know anything about. I didn't know anything about it till I got into the book. But that required rather rather than individual currency that we printed and used in the states ourselves uh, they required uh, <clears throat> their currency to be used so we didn't even have our own monetary system uh, we put that we put that together uh, to to uh, finance everything on our own and for currency on our own because uh, Benjamin Franklin had gone to England and and realized that that a kind of debt-based society that they had was really bad for the people. So he came back after a trip and um, was very instrumental in, in helping us understand and recognize that economic prosperity for the common man in the United States was based upon a currency system that wasn't backed on a, a debt-based um, uh, system such as we have today. Just, you know, if there's a new bill passed, we'll just print more money with the Federal Reserve, you know. So that lasted for about nine years. That was one of the major reasons to develop uh, a, a belief that um, that that we needed to break away from England at the exact time that we had decided to actually sign the Declaration of Independence, etc., and go to war, uh, that had been over. That had been stopped. But a lot of bad blood was was established there, and uh, there were some horrible situations of atrocities committed on both sides between what was called the Patriots for the American Revolutionary people and what was called the Loyalists at that time, the people that decided they were going to follow the crown, continued to follow the crown in, the, in what became the United States. You know, there's, there are also people who talk about the American Civil War 
as you know it's it's been referred to as the war to free the slaves and um and and yet there are a number of people who have studied it and said that it was about economics and that Lincoln's freeing of the slaves was more of a uh, a military strategy to weaken the south and and perhaps uh shore up uh northern troop numbers um what did your research find well uh there are several things number 1 uh, there's no question in my mind that, that uh, and, and the mind of uh, most obviously people today, slavery was wrong, period. Of no course. Question of that. course. Now, Thomas Jefferson originally wrote, if I could go back to the Declaration of Independence, he originally wrote in there that slavery would be abolished. Okay, no new slaves could be brought in. Uh, the southern states, I believe, of Georgia and South Carolina um, held off on uh, signing the Declaration of Independence and arguing about it to withhold their position to say, look, we're not going to get into that if you have that. So slavery was allowed to to bring in new slaves for 20 more years until uh, like, um, you know, that that was uh, 20 years after 1776. So it became a major problem. And there were efforts to stop that as early as the American Revolution. Well, as we continue to uh, go through the early uh, 1800s up to the Civil War, there were tariff, there were tariff issues relative to uh, products that um, that came into the country that were manufactured um, in in the North that were that were sold to the South, but we could get products cheaper uh, outside uh, the country than than the in a competitive uh, arena, and so that was one of the issues, the tariffs. Um, But there was also a situation where Lincoln originally tried to use just greenbacks. In other words, those those were defined as uh, being backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. But a lot of shenanigans went on relative to the financial aspects of that, and as it turned out, um, foreigners... Uh, got their finger in it. The international bankers got their finger in it, as well as some uh, uh, banks in the United States and so forth. And they, I, I didn't never quite totally understood that, but I tried as hard as I could to understand how they profited from certain bonds that began to be issued by about eight three, and they went off the greenback standard, which is totally a uh, an internal situation for financing the war. And eventually we had to sell bonds to finance the war. You know, the North had to sell bonds. And, of course, the South went totally under. Uh, they tried very hard to get some loans from overseas, and they finally got some loans from overseas um, by some entity named a guy named Erlanger, okay? Um, so, so a lot of different things happened in that regard. So there were really financial aspects to that where people profited from those bonds and being uh, uh, sold at a profit, um, and, and that people made money off that after the war was over. So just a whole set of complications, you know, but yet we had 600,000 American casualties on the battlefield where the population was much less than it is today obviously and you know i've been to all the civil war uh, most of the major civil war battlefields and and read the stories about the suffering um you know there's a a medical museum up in uh, fredericksburg maryland where uh, they talk about the different ways that they had i mean you literally took a saw you know to 
try to put people under to saw off their feet, uh, their legs and so forth, uh, when they got would, would have gotten gangrene. So, you know, all those things touched me as a disabled soldier to, to understand uh, how bad that thing was. And well, as an amputee, body- Alan, that could have been you. Well, yeah, back then it would have been. Just think about, uh, you know, they, they totally put me under. I mean, I was totally out. You know, about uh, after I was medevaced off uh, off my sure. camp, I was out beginning probably eight o'clock Saturday to six o'clock Sunday when they had me in there taking my left leg off. You know, I knew nothing. I could feel it. I had to have morphine every three hours for six weeks to stop the pain. You know. Yeah, I um, I talked with somebody a few months ago who had written a book about the uh, the surgeons in those days <laughs> and and some of the innovations that that they came up with which was kind of an interesting subject and, I, and i'm sure you've come across it in your research as well um but uh what what do we do now what do you what do you think of this this longest war this this time we've been tethered in so many ways to the middle east yeah. Well, an interesting thing about the Afghanistan war that people don't really focus on is that that is the probably the major poppy growing field in the world. OK. And I have a friend that just spoke uh, about um, the, the fentanyl uh, invasion in the United States and coming across our border. Uh, the original it is uh, propagated and started in China. We send the materials into Mexico. It's put together in Mexico and brought across our border with this open border that we have. And that's the one that's the, the major killer among amongst opioids today. So there's an example of a lot of people making a heck of a lot of money on it and and it's able to get into the country more because of the open borders but there in afghanistan uh we realized that that was happening we didn't go through and 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 and, um, destroy those poppy fields like we did uh with the agent orange dropping to to uh, have open fields of fire for our camps in vietnam and cause the original the the issues with agent orange with our troops coming out of there but uh those kinds of things are happening today and there are people that obviously are making money off that and uh you know money being laundered by the uh cartels in the united states but but overall um that situation just went on and on and on and you know we have an awful lot of generals that made careers off that why didn't they implement policies that that had us win that war between our our drone capabilities uh, and everything and the um, capabilities that we had bombing and so forth. Why couldn't we have taken out those bad guys and and finished that up a lot earlier? Uh, And so our people didn't have to go there over and over and over again. I have one friend that had five tours in Afghanistan. Right. Right. Um, my guest is retired Army Captain Alan B. Clark. He is the author of a uh, book called Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money, Wars and the Ruling Elites. Alan, how long did it take you to research and write this book? Well, it probably took me a full three or four years, and uh, then I began to put the chapters together. I have my... my um, spiritual faith enunciated in it also besides the aspects of the history and i also have a section that talks about the healing from post-traumatic stress 
sure. a face angle, and I have all of that in the book. So the combination of everything was probably three intense years of, of research and study and buying books. I spent $3,000 one year on books that I used for my research, and books all the way back to, to they were published during the Civil War that I found at antiquarian book sites. So it, it was just a constant, all-consuming effort for uh, three to four years to do the research and to write it and to bring it to press. Well, let me let me ask you this. Um, do you have the bug? Would you do it again? Would you write another book? I, I wanted to. I've written the chapters on the Russo-Japanese War of 1905, and the uh, South African Wars, uh, when the Brits went in and uh, took over um, took over South Africa with the diamond mines and gold mines, which uh, which elitists had a great deal of interest in to make the money and exploit the natural resources of that land. Uh, and I had a lot of other things that were going to bring it up to the current day. But um, to be candid with you, my wife said, Alan, uh, you know, you're getting up to uh, late 70s, and I'm now 80 as of June 20th. And she said, you know, you get up in the morning, you don't make your bed, and you go in there in your wheelchair, and you sit there at the computer all day long. <laughs> I don't want you to do that. If you have to, you go rent an office outside the home, get yourself up, make your bed, shave, and go to work. But in the meantime, don't do that. So I do not intend to do another work. Although I have some great ideas, the books are sitting all in front of me in my uh, in my office here. And I think I'm going to put excerpts of my current book plus the the uh, chapters that I would not, uh, that I have not written, that I would, into a blog called CombatFaith.blogspot.com. Interesting, interesting, and I, you know, I, I we're just about out of time, and I can't believe how fast the time has gone. I feel like we've just scratched the surface, Alan, because this certainly is a, an in-depth look at this subject. Um, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website you'd like to share? Yeah, I have. Thank you very much. It's www.combatfaith, F-A-I-T-H.com, and that's where I talk about healing uh, from post-traumatic stress and the emotional stressors of combat operating stressors, as I call it. So if anybody has issues themselves, uh, uh, re being real rehabilitated from warfare, or they know somebody in their family, or somebody that has post-traumatic stress, maybe from some personal situation that happened, they can go to that website, combatfaith.blogspot.com, or uh, different things on faith that I've put, put in. Uh, my book, I have two books before that, called Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior, Autobiography, Valor in Vietnam, 19 stories about Vietnam that are highly personalized. All three of my books include the current one, um, um, Soldier's Blood and Bloody Money, are all on Amazon. So uh, you can read the re go to those and read the reviews. There are some really powerful reviews for all three books. Well, Alan, thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning, and uh, I wish you uh, all kinds of luck with the uh, with the book, um, and uh, hope you'll uh, at 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 the risk of getting your wife upset with me. I hope you keep up the good work. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> well, I 
appreciate the opportunity. And, uh, you know, you get it, it, my answers are not necessarily what they call sound bites for television, but uh, I, I extended the answers out and I hope they were comprehensive enough to be interesting to your uh, audience. And uh, I thank you so much for your time. Well, we don't do sound bites here, Alan. I know. I can, well, you allowed me to go on and on with my answers, and I appreciate the extension of that time, and I appreciate it. All right. Well, like I said, uh, best of luck and keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. And with that, we'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. <laughs> my hands I don't touch my face I stay at home shelter in place social distance don't go to work I wear a mask and gloves I stay away from church Should I sneeze? I do it in my elbow or up my sleeve. Six feet apart. That is the room. And I pray for the day the kids can go back to school. I'm washing my hands. Like a raccoon with OCD I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC I've taken down all my mirrors And I'm sick of what I see Two more weeks of quarantine Will be the death of me a trip to the grocery store to buy a TV and a few things more but when I get there all I can find is 16 honey buns and some mad dog wine I'm washing my hands like a raccoon with OCD. I've watched Hulu, Roku, Netflix, PBS, and the BBC. I've taken down all my mirrors because I'm sick of what I see. Yeah, two more weeks of this quarantine's gonna be death of me you know they say this is war but we don't have to storm Omaha Beach or Porkchop Hill and we just lay here on the couch and watch TV I'd rather volunteer for a high risk commando raid to parachute into Wuhan and find that little fellow that ordered that bad soup I know I'm talking out of my head saying crazy stuff over and over like 
Yes, dear. Yes, dear. At breakfast, I meant to say, honey, please pass me the pepper. Well, what slipped out was, you crazy woman, you've ruined my life. <laughs> of course, I immediately apologized as <laughs> soon as I regained consciousness. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila, tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, 
regular table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker through their dare and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at 4 in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy. And it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
Nation Radio For a new generation Tom Sumner Program.com Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com Accoutrement, and maybe a little bit more. Oh, baby. 
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. <laughs> <laughs> 